funny, Roger? A few years ago, you had a chance to kill me. Now I'm gonna kill your little boy unless you kill yourself. No! Daddy! It's finally over, Roger. You've got no chance. Afraid of you anymore, Ben. Beat you and this goddamn house. Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews for over 25 years now. You can read all of my written work at Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. And while you're there, I do encourage you to check out the other podcasts that I do. If you're also a fan of films of the 1990s and newer films as well, it's called To the 90s and Beyond. And you can find the link to that at my website, Quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the first of this three-part series looking at haunted house films of the 1980s. I've done quite a few, all of the Poltergeist movies and Beetlejuice and whatnot, but we're going to get into a little bit more of the haunted house genre from the 1980s. And we're going to start with, well, the last episode was technically... The horror show, but it's also known as House 3. So this is a good time to go back to the first couple of House films that came out in the 1980s, starting with 1985's House. Now, it did come out in the U.S. in 1986, but there were a couple of film festival releases that made it qualify as a 1985 film. But technically, most people, I think, think of it as a 1986 film because it was released in February of 1986 officially. House is an R-rated film, and it does contain violence, frightening images, gore, and language. The runtime is an hour and 33 minutes. The main star is William Catt with George Went, Kay Lenz, Richard Mall, Mary Staven, and Michael Ensign also in the film. The director is Steve Miner, and the screenplay is credited to Ethan Wiley. Now, back in 1983... The origin of House as a story. You start with Steve Miner, the director of the second and third films in the Friday the 13th series. He was going to direct and produce this Godzilla film, but it was going to be a Hollywood film. So he hired to come aboard this hungry new screenwriter just out of film school, Fred Decker. He came aboard because he had a lot of interesting ideas, and uh, the project would eventually carry the title Godzilla King of the Monsters 3D. It was going to be a big extravaganza, obviously in 3D, but after Decker spent pretty much the next couple of years writing, revising, six total big drafts for this Godzilla project, 20th Century Fox, the studio that was going to put it out, decided to kill it because they deemed that it was going to be just too expensive. But in the meantime, Decker, he stayed busy. He had alternate projects including a teenage spy film called Teen Agent, which was determined to be a tongue-in-cheek spoof of James Bond, but someone else was brought in by the producer to rewrite what Decker had written, and it eventually was released several years later as If Looks Could Kill in the United States. It retained the title Teen Agent in other parts of the world. Decker also had a third project. This was a a sci-fi adventure. He was very enamored of the idea called The Forever Factor. It never did quite get made, but he did shop it around as a a sample of what he could do. 
But those higher budgetary requirements for the forever factor would forever keep it from becoming a factor in film. Now, feeling frustrated, Fred Decker, he determined he was going to write a horror movie concept. And it would be really scary, but it would be so low in budget that any studio he took it to could not say it was too expensive. In fact, if he offered to use his parents' 100-year-old Victorian home in Marin County, they might also give him the chance to direct. It was going to be such a cheap film. It had a bare-bones plot at that time. He came up with this notion of just a man entering this old house. All manner of crazy, surreal things happened to that man for about 85 minutes. And then at the end, the man leaves the house. As simple as that. The concept carried an equally simple title, House. Now, as Decker thought about the story more, he began to incorporate elements of this other story he had had in mind when he was a student back in UCLA film school. He and his other film school buddies, his roommates, whatnot, they had just seen in 1983 the Twilight Zone, the movie, at the theater. And they thought, after they watched this, that they should each write their own story for some sort of low-budget video anthology. Decker had a story in mind that he concocted, and he felt well, it maybe it was a little more EC Comics in its anthology premise than it was Rod Sterling. Notably, it was going to be scary, and it was going to incorporate rotting zombie horror effects, maybe done very cheaply. But it would also tap into the feeling at the time in the zeitgeist of America that we as a nation were haunted in the aftermath of the Vietnam War experience. So Decker's story was about this Vietnam veteran who's plagued by guilt by his experience behind enemy lines in the war. He's haunted by the memory that one of his members of his close-knit platoon got mortally wounded, and he was crying out in agony, knowing that this fallen soldier's screams would definitely result in giving up their position to the enemy, and probably all of them dying. The protagonist of Decker's story kills the injured soldier to keep him quiet. Flash forward to the present day, the protagonist is a patient in a VA hospital. He's in a romantic relationship with his female psychologist. His chance at happiness, though, gets threatened. He begins to have vivid hallucinations of that dead soldier's rotting, worm-infested corpse coming after him. The story ends, ultimately, with the violent death of the main character, and it leaves it ambiguous as to whether he was actually killed by a ghost or if he was consumed by remorse that prompted him to have hallucinations and commit suicide. Decker thought House could be about a man who enters into the home to exercise his personal demons from his Vietnam War experience, and then he sees all of these nightmarish visions of his platoon mate that haunts him at every turn. It would be unclear if all of the things that occur within the house would mean that the house is haunted by genuine paranormal events, or if those demons only exist in his mind. Now, Decker happened to be talking to his roommate, Ethan Wiley, about the story's premise. He had yet to really write out a full script about it. Ethan Wiley was a longtime friend from Marin County. They collaborated together, writing some plays, and they later continued that friendship at UCLA Film School. Now, Wiley had broken into the film business already. He was part of the Creature Crew on Return of the Jedi, as well as Gremlins. Wiley wanted to know why Decker had not just gone ahead and written this into a film. Decker said he, he wasn't really sure. Maybe it was laziness, or maybe he was just too busy working on all of those revisions to Godzilla King of the Monsters 3D, or maybe it was just the difficult subject matter of the Vietnam War experience that was going to be heavy and draining. But 
Wiley wanted to break into writing at that time, and he offered, hey, I will kickstart things by writing the first draft. So Decker said, sure, go ahead, give it a shot. Wiley wrote the first draft to House seemingly overnight. However, what Wiley showed Decker was completely different from what was originally intended, because Decker had envisioned House as more of a micro-budgeted black-and-white psychological horror film in the vein of Roman Polanski or William Friedkin. Wiley's take was a completely off-the-wall comedy that required a sizable special effects budget, and it would be hard to sell to a studio. And he also added quite a few elements to it that were his own, like a nosy guy next door, a hot neighbor, the estranged wife, a missing son... Decker really wasn't sure what to do with Wiley's script. He didn't want to really turn him down or make him feel deflated. Wiley obviously put a lot of good effort into it. He valued the friendship. He didn't want to damage it by rejecting it. So, unsure how to approach what he felt was a delicate subject, Decker decided to show it to a third party, his friend, director Steve Miner, for advice. Decker did not exactly get the answer he expected from Miner. Miner, who also was very disappointed at losing that Godzilla project and was similarly feeling like his career might be over after he had gotten pigeonholed into a fading genre like slasher movies, he felt like he needed to follow up something on the collapse of Godzilla. So he really, really liked Wiley's script. Miner said he was going to try to sell it as it was and he wanted to be the one to direct it as his next feature. So Miner took it immediately to producer Sean S. Cunningham, who had avenues to find financing. And Cunningham also liked that this was going to break the mold of those Friday the 13th films that they'd been doing. And he felt that slasher films, similarly, may have run their course because audiences had grown desensitized to that level of graphic violence. This one was going to be much different. It was going to go in a completely different direction because it showcased comedy and suspense. In the wake of Ghostbusters, it might actually work. Now, Cunningham shopped it around. 20th Century Fox, they were the ones who scrapped the Godzilla project. They were interested, but they returned a lot of notes on things that they wanted changed. And the changes probably would have made it a completely different film. So they decided to try their luck with other studios. Now, Miner learned a very valuable lesson in shopping it around. Don't count your chickens in Hollywood, because he did receive approval from TriStar's Jeff Zagansky. It was on a Friday. He went out on a Saturday. He bought a car. And then by Monday, Sagansky said, actually, uh, he couldn't actually do the film. Their best offer, New World Entertainment, New World Pictures, approved of the film. But what was important was that they were going to give them carte blanche to make the movie their way. Because New World's studio head at the time, he didn't quite understand the tone of what they were really going for. And he left it to them to see it through to completion. New Line really did love the concept. They were skeptical, though, how well a comedic horror film might ultimately fly with the public, which is why they didn't invest too much money into it. And as for Minor, the attempt to break out of the dark horror genre did work because his next film, After House, was the broad comedy Soul Man. He won a DGA award for comedy doing the pilot for the acclaimed dramedy series The Wonder Years in 1988. So this was his avenue out in the end. Now, Wiley's story, based on Decker's idea, it starts with this elderly artist named Elizabeth Hopper. She's found hanged in her home in her three-story Victorian house in Marin County that she always claimed was haunted. Elizabeth's nephew, a famous horror novelist named Roger Cobb, he inherits the house. He grew up there. He decides to move in so that he could have the solitude necessary to write his next book, which was 
a memoir of his harrowing time as an American soldier in Vietnam. His publisher, as well as his fans, are not really keen on him writing this as his next book. They want him to stick to the horror genre, but he finds that this is something that's really compelling him. He wants to get it down on paper, just to exercise his own personal demons. Cobb has undergone other traumatic experiences in recent memory. His son, Jimmy, he disappeared a year ago at that very house he is now inhabiting, and he's presumed dead. The ordeal resulted in a separation from his television soap opera actress wife, Sandy. In the home at night, Roger starts seeing things, unnerving things all around the house. These things include harrowing flashbacks to his Vietnam War days, where he let down a fellow trooper named Big Ben. Ben, when he was captured by the Viet Cong, vowed revenge on Roger for abandoning him to be tortured by them. Meanwhile, the next-door neighbor to the Victorian house, Harold, he's a bit nosy, he keeps coming around. Roger tries to catch these apparitions in the act. Roger's sure that his son must be alive somewhere still around the house, and that finding him is somehow going to redeem all that has happened in his life if he can just find a way to find his son. Now, Cunningham put up a lot of the funding for the film. He put in $3.5 million of his own money into it as part of that production deal with New World. Now, when they put it into production with New World, the original conceiver of the story, Fred Decker, he was left completely out of it. Decker was not only so upset with himself for ceding control of his story to his friends, but he became absolutely livid once House was released and it became a hit sleeper film, eventually becoming the highest grossing film in New World Pictures history up to that point. Meanwhile, Decker's own career seemed destined to go nowhere. His only sure idea to get his foot in Hollywood's door was now gone. Although he did get a story credit for House, Decker never saw a penny of the film's profits. Sickened by it all, Decker broke off his friendship with Wiley. He was steamed over the incident for quite a while. But eventually, Wiley and Miner patched things up when they assured Decker they were going to do whatever they could to find and support him in a directorial effort in the future. Somewhat ironically, that film, Night of the Creeps, ended up being a very similar tongue-in-cheek comic book-inspired horror flick, very much like House. Steve Miner repaid the debt to Decker by working as second unit director on that film. Now, as far as House goes, it is a very loopy horror comedy. It mixes traditional paranormal horror with psychological terror elements stemming from the PTSD experienced from the loss of a son, as well as guilt for not doing more for a buddy during a critical moment in battle. The star, William Catt, he's a few cuts above the typical lead actor for a low-budget horror flick. Sean Cunningham, he said that he specifically chose Cat above all of the others who auditioned because of his likability. He had a physical fitness to him for the role, as well as his ability to deliver humor with pathos. He was also one of the only ones who really got the tone of the Roger Cobb part. Now, if Roger Cobb were unlikable, the film would completely fall apart for the audience. Cat comes in and he deftly handles the comedy, the horror, the drama, the tragedy in a way that feels very natural without throwing off the delicate tone of the horror and comedy within the film. A lesser actor probably would have made this a little too uneven to recommend. And because of the physical demands and the levels of mental cues and concentration on timing required, he was the one who fit the bill. Cat called it ultimately one of the most exhausting, but also one of the greatest experience he's ever had as an actor. There's also a very solid cast of supporting actors here. George Wendt here as the friendly but nosy neighbor. Minor pursued Wendt specifically because, as he read the script, he envisioned George Wendt in the part. 
He was on Cheers at the time, and he was available, and luckily said yes. Went and Kat improvised spins on their dialogue. They didn't adhere too much to the dialogue of the script, but they did stick with the story's general direction. Kay Lenz was somebody that came to mind for Minor. He had she was somebody he had always had a crush on, but he also respected her as an acting talent. Now, Lens, when she was approached, she was not really eager to do a horror film, but when she read the script, she found it actually very funny, very refreshing, and she happened to have gone to high school with William Cat, so she signed on board. Six foot, eight inch tall, Richard Maul, he played, at that time, Bull the Bailiff on TV's Night Court. He was one of the few imposing but very funny people that came to mind for the role of Big Ben, the fellow troop in Cobb's platoon that Cobb lets down and whose memory comes back to haunt him. But Maul was just too beefy to really be fitted into the zombie suit that they had later, so they found a very skinny tennis player named Kurt Wilmont, a friend of theirs, who was the same height as Maul. He would put on the Big Ben skeletal suit at the end of this film. The mask for that suit contained radio-controlled elements that would provide additional facial expressions, especially for the eyes and around the mouth. The suit meant to represent those muscles and bones that were showing in his zombified form. They were made of rubber. Meanwhile, Maria Staven, she's the gorgeous neighbor. Staven was 1978's Miss World contest winner. She also broke through in the James Bond film series, one of the Bond girls. Steve Miner's own son. He plays Staven's character's son that Roger babysits in the film. And Roger Cobb's son, Jimmy, he's played by a couple of twins named Eric and Mark Silver. Now, although this is set in Northern California in Marin County, the house is actually a classic Victorian that was built in 1887 by William Monroe in L.A. County in the town that was named after Monroe, Monrovia. Cunningham spotted the house. It had grown dilapidated, though, over time. Cunningham offered the current owners, which were this group of firemen from Arcadia who had pulled their resources to buy the property, he offered to fund renovations in exchange for being able to shoot their film there. Greg Fonseca... He had found the house because Monrovia was a location he knew to have Victorian abodes like what they needed. And he and his team of technicians, they completely repainted the entire exterior. They added gingerbread molding and additional spires, wrought iron fencing all around, a quaint sidewalk to the front of the house. In the back of the house, they replaced the clapboard that was there with brick and planted an entire new lawn as well as a garden of flowers. The home's interior rooms... They were not there. They were replicated at Renmar Studios, which was the old Desi Lu Studios. And the Vietnamese jungle was created for the flashback sequences in a space next door to those studios. Creature effects designer Jim Cummins, he came at the recommendation of Chris Wallace, who knew Cummins as somebody whose designs were both unnerving but also eerily humorous, very much in the EC Comics style that House was written in and pays homage to. Cunningham and Miner took a look at Cummins' most recent work for this film called Strange Invaders, and they loved it, and they hired him for House. Now, Cummins came in, he crafted seven different monsters, from a war demon that jumps out of the closet, to devilish kids, to a flying bat-like void creature, to a witch, to a stuffed mounted marlin, to the zombified Big Ben. It took a team of 17 creature technicians about 10 hours a day, six days a week, for nearly four months to bring all of these monsters from concept to their ultimate life on the screen. All 17 technicians were necessary 
to operate the $100,000 war demon pneumatic puppet that only appears for a few seconds in the film. It was 18 feet long with eight foot arms. They were disappointed that it didn't get featured more in the film because if you look closely at it, it actually represents a lot more of the Vietnam War, the people who died there, as well as having armor and bullets at its fingertips to further evoke that Vietnam War haunting. Now, I mentioned that Miner wanted to change his slasher movie image opting here for a lot more humor, a lot less gore than he typically had done in his horror movies before. So the monsters are very cartoonish. They're very surreal, though, at the same time. And that EC Comics homage meant that these monsters could double either as ghostly manifestations or Roger's hallucinations. Budgetary limitations did require that a lot of the makeup effects had to be done live instead of in post-production. You know, you only had $3.5 million to play with for the entire film, so they had to use puppets, people in full bodysuits, handling a lot of the creature actions live in front of the camera. The Void creature was originally going to be a puppet, but they changed it to a much more mechanical process to have its head and mouth move while its wings flapped, and then they spliced it in with an animated portion using a miniature provided by DreamQuest. As far as the demon kids in the house, they were achieved using a combination of hand puppets that could change to a variety of facial expressions and a small actor with a rubber mask for the full bodies running around. Now, Cunningham's favorite cinematographer, or he would be, Mac Alberg, he shoots the horror flick with unusually bright, very mirthful tones befitting of its comedic leanings. It works very well in order to keep the tone light as can be. And also working in concert, Cunningham's go-to composer, Harry Manfredini. He did the score after the original composer they had hired was fired. Now, during test screenings, one of the members of the sound department was growing worried when he heard audience laughter at various points. He was not aware that this film was actually meant to be a comedy while he was working on it, and many others didn't either. And that's what Miner wanted. He wanted everybody to shoot it straight because he wanted the film to be scary and the comedy would come out through the characters and the characterizations above it. Now, that first screening was a rough cut. A lot of the crew who worked on the film was in that audience. That ended up being dead on arrival because the crew did not really know how to take the film. And Miner thought, well, maybe he might be ruined after making a completely lifeless film. So he went back. He re-edited the entire movie. He put in the Manfredini music cues, and then when he played it for a test audience at New Line, it completely worked from the first scene to the last, except for the two song covers used in the film, Bob Ramey, the head of New World. He thought those were a little too much, but everything else was fantastic. So much so that he was willing to give Miner the benefit of the doubt and keep those songs in the film. Now, originally, the story element about the boy who goes missing and the Vietnam story did not actually connect but then they discovered that even though everything had worked for that New World showing, when they actually showed it to real audiences, the ending didn't seem to work as well as they thought it should. So they had to brainstorm on what to do. Because in the original ending, Roger Cobb climbs down a rope from his bathroom window. That's still in the film. But at the bottom, he enters into the swimming pool where he lost his son. And his son is there, but so is this monster. And it requires Roger to have to battle and save the boy from the monster. The child actor was so scared of being in the black water and having this uh, monster there, he did not emote as well as they hoped. And the ending did not seem to be as satisfying to the audience. So instead, they decided to change the ending so that when Roger comes up from the pool, instead of finding his son there, he finds himself in Vietnam where his son is a prisoner of war 
inside a cage and he finds his way to get him out. Audiences did approve much more of this ending. So now they had the completed film, but although the film, like the house itself, is more quaint than scary, it was given an R rating by the MPAA. You know, removing a, a couple of F-bombs here and there probably could have resulted in House getting a PG-13 rating. But Sean Cunningham, he actually wanted it to have that R rating. He thought horror movie audiences of the time, they would be uninterested in seeing a PG-13 or less movie. He was counting on that crowd coming out to see it. Even with the R rating, though, the fights are mild. So your expectations should probably be tempered, even if you're a horror movie fan, to avoid disappointment. If you are expecting nonstop terror, this is not that kind of movie. This definitely does play much more as a comedy than it does a really gory, nasty horror film. Now, despite its unusual February release, House still became a surprise hit at the time. Just behind Pretty in Pink, it spent its first two weeks, in fact, as the number two film in the country, and in the end, racked up nearly $20 million off of its $3.5 million budget. And that was just in the U.S. It doubled its overall take, if you count international dollars. Now, although House is a comical film, there are very serious undertones about overcoming fears we all carry with us. I think that makes it a cut above just being just a silly comedy horror premise. You know, there's a life lesson here. It's very serious coming out strong against all of those onuses that weigh so heavily in our minds. We can regain the confidence that we once had and we can regain the lives we were meant to lead if we can exercise those demons. The house of the film represents the fears we all harbor with us that emerge in our solitude, often in the middle of the night. And by confronting those fears, we regain our perspective again on where we want to go with the rest of our lives. I think House is actually a very refreshing and interesting film. One I would actually recommend for people who not only love horror films of the 1980s, but just people who don't mind a little bit of scares here and there, but but like it done with a little bit of sugar, a little bit of sweetness, a little bit of thought, and comedy, of course, underneath. You know, the story itself is a little bit nonsensical when you start thinking about it, but in the end, it is still a very entertaining film done with very good quality thespians, as well as good technicians all behind the scenes, making it all work. In fact, Fred Decker himself, he acknowledges, even though his version of House was supposed to be much different, he doubts it would be nearly as successful, both critically and commercially, because what they did with the story was inject a great deal of fun into the film. And that's why, ultimately, I will give House three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means I do recommend it for people who like this kind of movie. If you like your horror and scares mixed in one, I think House is one of those films, one of those rare films that really gets to deliver respectably both. And that subtext about the Vietnam War experience and the loss of family and all of that coming together as far as what's going on in the house and that analysis of the psychological terror that continues to exist due to traumatic experiences in the mind of Roger Cobb. I think that makes it just a cut above your average film. And that's why I do give House three stars out of four. Now, House's success obviously did continue, as with so many horror films, with additional House entries. I covered, obviously, House 3 on the previous episode, even though it's completely unrelated, also unrelated, was House 2, The Second Story, which is the film I'm going to be covering on the next episode. It definitely goes much more into the comedy realm than even this one, but it is directed by the screenwriter of this film, Ethan Wiley, who also co-wrote with Fred Decker 
as part of his payback for coming up with the original story. So House 2, the second story from 1987 will be what I cover on the next episode. Bill Mars in the film. It stars Ari Gross as well. John Ratzenberger, by the way, George Wentz's colleague from Cheers is in that film as well. So it's a movie I haven't seen in a very long time and I don't remember a lot of it. So I am definitely looking forward to digging into that for next episode. By the way, related to the first house, at least, Shane Black, good friend of Fred Decker, also borrowed the zombie Vietnam soldier concept for his first attempt at writing a screenplay. It was going to be called Shadow Company. And he worked with Decker to develop it as a John Carpenter vehicle in the late 1980s. Yes, it would be Black and Decker to make this film. It was never made, but the script can be found online if you're interested. By the way, Decker and Black did collaborate for The Predator in 2018. I don't think that one was nearly as successful as some of their earlier work. Cat did return as Roger Cobb, by the way, for the direct-to-video entry called House 4. But he's only really in the beginning of the film. He did it as a favor to Sean Cunningham. He filmed this part in about two days. But it's the only one of the House sequels that really directly ties into Roger Cobb and his experience from House, even though it contradicts the story in a few notable ways. That is from the 1990s. I will cover it at some point on To the 90s and Beyond rather than doing it here. And if you're interested, Kaylands and William Cat did reunite as a married couple once again in the 2013 comedy called The Secret Lives of Dorks, which has nothing to do with the house films. But if you really like Kaylands and William Cat and their work here, and you want to see more of them working together, that does exist in another film. Anyway, that's the look at 1985 1986's House. If you have your own thoughts on House you want to impart to me, you can write to me and you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. There are also links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, and my Instagram that are there. But but email is the best way you can find the link at quipster.net. But even if you don't end up writing to me, you can still listen to the show. And I thank you for your listenership and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. Mm-hmm.